Saturday noon to two. Colonel Blake, Henry, yeah, Charlie here, yeah. I have a report here, Henry, from your, uh, from your chief nurse, Major O'Houlihan. She makes some accusations, Henry. I, I find pretty hard to believe.
I did was play it. I'm American, so I played it. I used to sing it in school. They made me sing it in school, so it was a flashback. You know, I don't know about it. This man was in the 101st Airborne, so when you write your nasty letters in... Nasty letters? Wow, right. you really well, people, When you mention the national anthem and uh, talk about playing it in any unorthodox way, you immediately get a guaranteed percentage of hate mail from people well, listen, who say, how dare... That's not unorthodox. That's not unorthodox. It isn't unorthodox? No, no. I thought it was beautiful. But then there you go. Don't you find that there's a certain mad beauty in unorthodoxy?
se ahoga con marullo y si se derrumba yo lo reconstruyo tampoco pestañeo cuando te miro para que te recuerde de mi apellido la operación cóndor invadiendo mi nido perdono pero nunca olvido oye Good morning, Mutinin Radio fans. <coughs> This is the B, a.k.a. Bill Morgan with the Labor and Love Show, as we do every Saturday morning at 10 a.m. We come into your homes, if you welcome us, with labor news, labor opinion, labor commentary, labor history, interviews, plus... Music of social significance. Welcome, everybody. This is the show where we tell you how it is. If one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. Or maybe a hundred people work for a penny they didn't get. It's theft all the same. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're going to be on the menu. People, you have no over here. And never, but never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. And when I say labor, I mean you. Of course, they don't want you to have a union. Your work makes them rich. This is the Labor and Love Show, and that was our opening set. Quite an opening set there. We opened up, of course, celebrating today, the 4th of July. Before anything else, I want to wish everybody a happy 4th of July. <coughs> the question is, What are we celebrating? What are we celebrating? We just had Calle 13 with Latino America reminding us that America means not just the United States, but it means an entire continent, an entire hemisphere. There are Americans from Canada to Antarctica and everywhere in between. So we are all Americans. Before that, we had Buffy St. Marie. Buffy St. Marie singing 
a song from her uh, latest album called Power in the Blood. And um, that one was Sing Our Own Song. Heavy beat in the back. Um, very nice. Buffy has transformed her style or gotten new style, right? Uh, more immediate, heavy drum style. And um, before that, of course, Jimi Hendrix with the Woodstock version of the National Anthem, uh, a song that was penned, the lyrics were penned by Francis Scott Key, a Baltimore lawyer and slave owner, while he waited on a ship in uh, Baltimore Harbor. Fort McHenry was being attacked by the British, and he wrote this song. The tune, however, was uh, predated those lyrics. So what Hendrix did was give us his version of the national anthem with emphasis upon the violence that goes into uh, making our society and keeping it running. A violence that has become only too obvious in the last, well, on the part of a BART policeman in uh, 2009, I believe. At any rate, what do we got for you today on the labor beat? Looks like the Reds, the owner of the Redskins, Washington Redskins football team, Dan Snyder, one of the most obdurate, hide-bound capitalists around has decided to think about changing the name of the team. Redskins. Where is that at? He claims that the team was named after a Native American guy who earlier worked for the team. But to call that person a Redskin is particularly egregious. Um, Native American groups have tried to bring this to the floor and it's gotten some it's gotten some what do I want to say traction we'll go into that will there be an NBA boycott you're a basketball player you want to go in there and injure yourself on a two-bit season like this ruin your career as usual, we're bringing you radio labor. And we got our own labor beat. We got a group called Burn, a box group doing Naked Soul. Francesca Fiorentini interviewing Bernie Sanders. What about a Mexican labor lawyer? who was just jailed. What was that about? The situation on the border. 
We've got labor history in two minutes. We've got Francesca Ramsey, and the title of her feature today is Why Does MTV Decoded Hate White People? Do they hate white people? Teachers are returning to work, or are they? I want to play a thing right here before we get into radio labor and all that other stuff. This is um, from Howard Zinn, and it's called The People Speak. Zinn is dealing today with the Revolutionary War. He's got to say that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights. This is the Declaration of Independence. That among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. That to secure these rights, governments are instituted among men, deriving their just powers from the consent of the governed. That whenever any form of government becomes destructive of these ends, it is the right of the people to alter or to abolish it. The Constitution which came 10 years after the revolution, was designed to ensure stability and security. Gone is the revolutionary language of the Declaration of Independence. The right to life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness was changed to the right to life, liberty, and property. The Constitution, by design, created a government that would be controlled by slave owners and bondholders. You're not supposed to say things like that about the Constitution, which is a, a holy document. But the fact is that while the Constitution created a government more representative than monarchy, more representative than other places in the world, uh, it was not a democracy. In fact, the Bill of Rights, which guaranteed freedom of speech and assembly, was not in the original Constitution. It was only added later after popular protest. And when one looks at American history this new way, one sees that there has always been a conflict between the ideals of the people set forth in the Declaration of Independence and the interests of the wealthy classes expressed in the Constitution. And we're hoping that these, these words out of the past will speak very directly to what we face now uh, in the present. In the war for independence against England, ordinary soldiers were treated poorly, while the officers were fed and clothed luxuriously. Thousands of soldiers mutinied against Washington and his officers, demanding fair treatment. We don't learn about these mutinies in our schools. Here, two soldiers describe their experiences during and after the Revolutionary War. A sergeant who was known by the appellation of Macaroni Jack had committed some trivial offense, and the officers ordered him to be brought from the guardhouse, which done, he was tied up, and the drummers ordered to give him a certain number of lashes upon his bare back. When he was tied up, he looked around and addressed the soldiers, exclaiming to them, Dear brother soldiers, won't you help me? This, in the eyes of the officers, 
savored of mutiny. And they called out, take him down, take him down. Macaroni Jack and five other prisoners were then brought out and their sentence, which was death, was read to them. Their eyes were then bandaged or covered with silk handkerchiefs. And at the signal given by the officer, Macaroni Jack was shot, but with an awfulness that would have made even devils to have shrunk back and stood appalled. From those who engaged to serve during the war enlisted, they were promised 100 acres of land, each, which was to be in their or the adjoining states. When the country had drained the last drop of service it could screw out of the poor soldiers, they were turned adrift like old worn-out horses, and nothing said about land to pasture them upon. The country was served and faithfully served, and that's all that was deemed necessary. It was soldiers, look to yourselves, we want no more of you. The country was rigorous in exacting my compliance to my engagements, but equally careless in performing her contracts with me. And why so? Because she had all the power in her hands, and I had none. Such things ought not to be. After the revolution, these mutinies continued in the form of rebellions among citizens. And farmers, many of them veterans, of the Revolutionary War, farmers given little pieces of land, now finding their land being taken away from them because the taxes are so high they can't pay them, and they gather by the thousands and they rebel. They surround the courthouses and won't let the auction continue to take away their land and their livestock. I've labored hard all my days and fared hard. I've been greatly abused, have been obliged to do more than my part in the war been loaded with class rates, town rates, province rates, continental rates, and at all rates been pulled and hauled by sheriffs, constables, and collectors, and had my cattle sold for less than they were worth. I've been obliged to pay, and nobody will pay me. I've lost a great deal by this man, and that man, and the other man, and the great men are going to get all we have, and I think it's time for us to rise and put a stop to it. Okay, that was some. That was some <clears throat> words from the founding of the U.S. As a matter of fact, soldiers uh, were promised a bounty, and uh, these contracts became um, speculative. People began to sell them because they. They couldn't get their bounty, so they sold the promissory note, and these were collected up by speculators. And um, those speculators were the people who pushed for a strong central government in the new. They wanted a strong central government so that they could collect all these promissory notes that they had put together or purchased from needy ex-soldiers. Before that, we had a, uh, an account of uh, um, um, 
killing, seven soldiers killing, the discipline in the uh, revolutionary quote-unquote army was iron. Washington himself had people killed because they were insubordinate. They wanted better treatment. They were doing the fighting. They were putting their lives on the line. Kind of uh, typical, huh? Sounds familiar. Okay, well, that's the beginning. What are we celebrating? Let's try to figure that out now. Jimi Hendrix celebrates a society, but it's a society based on violence. A society not only of the Vietnam War, but the riots and the p battles in the, in the streets. What's happening today? I think it's different. Talk about this later when we talk about the issue of the Confederacy. But what's happening now is a much wider, much wider group of people are standing up. This is a multiracial movement in support of especially African American people victimized by the police and all of a sudden a wider culture took a look at it and said wait a minute no not anymore no no not again not again at any rate we'll see where this is going it's a huge and mighty wave Okay, finally, a Redskins owner bowing to demands to change offensive name. Washington Redskins owner Dan Snyder announced Friday that he would conduct a thorough review of his NFL team's racist name. What does he has to What does he have to do? He has to review that, which has been the target of protests for decades by indigenous people and other critics who say the name amounts to a harmful slur. Well, yeah. A red skin? Sure. Is that okay to call you that? If it's you? Are you a red skin? Snyder's announcement comes after at least five decades of public actions. The catalyst for this review appeared to be demands made by the team's corporate Partners. FedEx, which sponsors the Redskins' home stadium and whose CEO is a partial owner of the team, released a statement Thursday saying, We have communicated to the team in Washington our request that they change the team name. Nike also removed Redskins merchandise from its online store on Thursday. The two companies, along with PepsiCo, last week received letters from 87 of their investors whose holdings are worth $620 billion, calling on them to end their business partnerships with the Redskins unless the team changed its name. 
Snyder's signal that a potential name change could be forthcoming came after decades of outcry from indigenous people, all of whom he dismissed in 2013 by claiming he would never change the name. In 1968, the National Congress of American Indians launched its first campaign to try to move harmful stereotypes and images from U.S. media and popular culture. Money changes everything. The anti-bigotry campaign Sleeping Giants tweeted on Friday. Eleanor Holmes Norton, Congresswoman from Washington, D.C., has demanded that the name be changed. Before Snyder purchases a stadium in D.C., she wants to move the game from FedEx Field to RFK. So Eleanor Holmes Norton says he has a problem he can't get around. And he particularly can't get around it today after the George Floyd killing, said Norton. Representative Raul, Raul Grijalva, Democrat of Arizona, also demanded the name be changed, saying it is up to Snyder to step into this century. There's no way to justify keeping the name. Well, this is something this is something tantamount to a miracle. Dan Snyder changing his name. One of the most, as I said before, obdurate and hidebound white capitalist, privileged, rich people. Money talks. He wants that stadium, so he's willing to consider changing them. Hasn't changed it. He appointed a group to examine it or something like that. This is on port side. Material of interest. People on the left. NBA players are facing a question. To boycott or not boycott? debate heats up among NBA players over whether to return to the court amid nationwide protests against racist violence. Many players feel the issues of racial justice and stopping police violence are pressing. Now is not the time for pro basketball. Kyrie Irving has his opinions on a wide array of subjects. It's been being been debated whether he is sincere or engaged in performance art. Irving has currently organized a coalition of players to range from hesitant to militantly organized to restarting the NBA season during the ongoing pandemic as his sequestered employees in a bubble in Orlando. With news of recent coronavirus spikes in Florida, some players believe that resuming the season is fundamentally unsafe. 
but others, including Irving, have a different reason not to take to the court right now. A movement against racist police environment. Irving said that he would be willing to give up everything for the cause. He also said, I don't support going to Orlando. I'm not with the systematic racism and bullshit. Something smells a little fishy. Whether we want to admit it or not, we are targeted as black men every day we wake up. Former NBA player Steven Jackson, who was a friend of George Floyd, I love the NBA, man. Now ain't the time to be playing basketball. Playing basketball is going to do one thing. Take all the attention away from the task at hand right now and what we're fighting for. So check that out. This is by Dave Zirin, the uh, socialist sports writer. Okay, let's look at uh, radio labor now. Take a little break from labor news, and then uh, we'll do labor labor radio. After which, we're uh, expecting a phone call. So we'll see about that around 11 a.m. Radio labor. This is Solidarity News on Radio Labor. This is a Radio Labor World Report recorded on Friday, June 26, 2020. I'm Mark Belanger. In the report this week, 200,000 seafarers are stuck at sea because of the pandemic. How women workers will be affected by a green tech recovery. The Labor Start report about union events and rapping. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions Saying these ain't the friends to be choosing Out for themselves, not for others This is Radio Labor Just imagine being on a ship for 15 months And not having seen your wife, husband, children Or families in that time That is Steve Trousdale Talking about the 200,000 seafarers Who have been stuck on ships because of the COVID-19 lockdown Another 200,000 have been left without income because they can't board their ships. Mr. Trousdale is the inspectorate coordinator of the International Transport Workers Federation. The ITF represents 20 million workers in almost 700 unions. It has started a campaign called Enough is Enough in support of the seafarers. I asked Mr. Trousdale about the seafarers confined to the ships. On any given month, around 100,000 seafarers have changed over on vessels across the world. And we estimate that COVID-19 pandemic hit the maritime industry. More than 200,000 seafarers who have completed their contractual obligations are waiting to go home. And of course, that means there are at least 200,000 seafarers waiting to start their tours of duty. The ITF's Enough is Enough campaign comes off the back of repeated calls to governments uh, where we've been asking them to ease restrictions and make practical exceptions for seafarers so that they can seek medical attention, step ashore to relax, just even take a walk, uh, and of course go home to their families. Seafarers accepted 
that they were unable to return home in the beginning in order to minimise the spread of COVID-19. And the ITF, along with our responsible social partners, the Joint Negotiating Group, agreed twice to extend CFRS contracts to reduce their exposure and in recognition of the challenge that the global pandemic has placed on travel restrictions and the availability of flights. But seafarers have done their bit. They've performed their duties. And so now we're saying enough is enough. We have to get the crew changed. So we've taken a stand that if any seafarer comes to us and asks us to leave their ship, we will do whatever we can to assist them. You know, there's a lot of talk about designating seafarers as key workers, but most governments are only really paying lip service to this term. And while seafarers have been the unseen workforce for since they started, they are now classed very much as second-class citizens. The ITF has said that it and its affiliated unions will help the seafarers exercise their right to stop working, leave the ships, and return home. Are the seafarers being asked to go on strike? Absolutely not. No point have we asked a crew member to strike. This is about seafarers exercising their rights. Once a seafarer's contract has expired and once their ship is safely in port, they have the right not to sign an extension and after that to be repatriated. Of course, there will be instances when a seafarer cannot disembark because of a lack of flight ability or their replacement is not ready to board. But when a seafarer has reached the end of their contract, he or she has the right not to perform any work outside of safety and emergency requirements. Since the launch of the Enough is Enough campaign, we have received some 1,500 emails and hundreds of WhatsApp, Viber and Facebook messages the overwhelming majority of which are seafarers simply asking to go home. Seafarers are reporting to us that they are suffering from fatigue, depression, and other mental health issues associated with having been on board for 12, 13, 14, or even 15 months in some cases. I mean, just imagine being on a ship for 15 months and not having seen your wife, husband, children, or families in that time. This in itself is inhumane. But then add the fact that they might not have been paid for three, four, five or more months as well. That there is no money going home to support their families. Or that they don't have sufficient food and water on board. This is the reality for many seafarers. And so how can anyone object to a seafarer exercising his or her rights? What do you mean they're not being paid? They're on the ships. Are they not deserving of pay? They've got an employment contract and they are entitled to a monthly wage. Unfortunately, uh, this is one of the biggest problems that the ITF and its inspectorate cite, um, and that is the uh, non-payment of wages, sometimes for two, three, four, five months, but sometimes for even longer than that. Some companies feel that they can neglect their contractual obligations and just withhold seafarers' money. Last year alone, in 2019, the ITF inspector recovered $43 million in owed wages that were not paid to seafarers that they recovered and gave back to the seafarers of the world. Unions around the world are demanding that post-pandemic economic recoveries include decent work for women. Seamarie Ainsborough reports. As the pandemic is forcing countries to address how they will reboot their economies, the labor movement is pushing for more emphasis on green, sustainable technologies. As part of this push, Industrial Global Union organized a webinar on green tech, a future worth fighting for. 
the question of how women workers will be affected was highlighted. The webinar was moderated by Industrial Communications Officer Walton Pantland. He talked to Industrial's Equality Officer Armel Sebi. Green Check also incorporates Industry 4.0 and the shift from blue collar to white collar work. And clearly in the future, we're not going to need as many strong men to pound steel and carry heavy weights because we'll have machines that do that. So I wonder what that means for the gender makeup of our workplaces. Is this an opportunity for more women to get highly skilled, well-paid jobs? Amel, you're our gender coordinator. What do you think? Women benefiting automatically from new technologies in terms of getting highly skilled and well-paid jobs, it's not automatic, actually. Because what we see today, when we look at the presence of women in science, technology, and engineering and mathematics jobs, we usually call them STEM jobs. What we see is that the women's presence is very low. Embedded social and cultural norms and also stereotypes and behavior are barriers for women, uh, barriers that prevent actually women of joining and staying in these, in these jobs, uh, technological or engineering jobs. So we, we should really be aware that women working in STEM jobs, for them, the, the workplace is very different than for men. And uh, it is why the proportion of women is among high-skilled jobs in technology or in engineering is quite low. And it is particularly true for engineering and computer science and, and ICT. So what we see is like women would drop out from this science, technology or engineering, mathematics uh, discipline in a very disproportionate numbers during their higher education or in the transition to the world of work or even in the career, and it's why it is important for trade unions to really address this. Women would face in engineering or in, uh, in ICT or computer science, glass sailing, wall, uh, glass walls. So they are often, they often choose and they also often chosen to occupy more generalist and less technical or lower management position. So it, it creates a gender pay gap in, this, uh, in these sectors. A woman will less uh, will earn uh, less than than their colleagues. We and then also one of the main barrier for the women who are working in these sectors and uh, why they would leave actually engineering or technological jobs is because they would face constant conscious and unconscious uh, sexism. What we see is like STEM jobs are very male dominated, so they feel isolated. There is a uh, some kind of macho culture. In, uh, in these jobs. And uh, so they would face conscious and unconscious sexism on a daily basis, like uh, jokes, behavior, or comments that would uh, undermine actually women's work or question their capacity, their competency, and would isolate them and preventing them to evolve in these, uh, in these technological and in, these, in their careers. So if we really want women to benefit from these green and new technology, Trade unions have an important role to play. They should ensure that women would enjoy equality of opportunity and chances, and also equality of treatment in these sectors. Otherwise, the gender gaps that we that I've been mentioning now will just worsen, and the women will be the big losers of these changes that we are now seeing, and uh, they will not have access to decent work. This is Seymour Ainsbro reporting for Radio Labour.
Here with his report about union events is Labor Start correspondent Derek Blackadder. Each day, Labor Start's volunteers collect hundreds of news items about the struggle of workers and their unions from around the world in 35 languages. Here's a tiny sample of their hard work. Our top story sections included links to the flogging and imprisonment of 42 Iranian workers who demanded their pay, and the West Coast ports shutdown in the United States in solidarity with the Black Lives Matter movement. And of course, we had many, many stories about the International Trade Union Confederation's Global Labor Rights Survey. This week, the emerging trends in our news coverage are the return of safety walkouts and other protests by healthcare workers as the pandemic hits hard in countries with largely private healthcare systems. An example would be how nurses in El Salvador's nonprofit hospitals were using their break periods to protest the lack of even very basic personal protective equipment. In nearby Nicaragua, doctors who have challenged the government's decision to let the pandemic run its course without intervention have been fired, and despite this, over 700 healthcare workers have signed a petition in an effort to change state policy on COVID 19. In Brazil, school teachers struck rather than return to work as schools reopened after a regular holiday without any regard for student or worker safety. We did have some good COVID-19 news this week as the wage theft scandals in Australia, many of them exposed by the effects of the pandemic, have resulted in one state making it an offense. Globally, from Botswana diamonds to Bangladesh garments, the effects of the COVID-19 crisis are helping unions and their activist allies expose the responsibility of global brands for working conditions at the point of production. An equally common but negative trend associated with the pandemic are the attacks on media workers who have been working at exposing the shortcomings and mistakes of governments and the deliberate ignorance of employers in the face of COVID-19. Dozens have been assaulted, jailed, or murdered in the past few months. Today, stories on our site about journalists being arrested after their work exposed shortcomings in their government's pandemic response come to us from 11 countries. For our working women pages, our volunteers found news of huge increases in the number of assaults and verbal abuse incidents involving women retail workers in the United Kingdom as they attempt to enforce physical distancing and mask requirements amongst customers. Union reaction to more examples of gendered violence in the South African school system and how and why nurses are bearing the COVID-19 treatment burden in Lesotho. Current campaigns that we are running at the request of unions around the world include an urgent appeal for online solidarity with Brazilian bank workers, thousands of whom are being sacked despite a promise that the pandemic would not result in any job losses. This is Derek Blackheader from Labor Start, reporting for Radio Labor. Now here is Luke Rodriguez with a new solidarity forever. Yo, I've been hearing a lot of trash talk about unions Saying these ain't the friends to be choosing Out for themselves, not for others You might have heard unions ain't good for your health, brother Well, let me spit it for you, got something to say It's because of unions, we gotta aid our work day This ain't no commercial break, my friend Unions are the peeps who brought you the weekend Probably never think about it, la di da Unions fought hard for your right to party 
They're out there to ease your tension with decent wages, health care, and pensions. Now it's like unions blame for bad weather. But tell me what's wrong with solidarity forever. I want to shout it on high, get it off my chest. The story here is fighting for those who have less. So when unions are bad guys in the propaganda war, think what they've done, where they stand, who they fight for. The new Solidarity Rap was written by Luke Rodriguez and Michael Roos. It was produced by the United Food and Commercial Workers Union, the UFCW. And that's it. International labor news you can use. You can listen to our features and daily newscasts at radiolabor.net. Follow us on Twitter at Radio Labor. I'm Mark Boulanger. Thank you for listening. And remember, it's all about caring for each other through global solidarity. Okay, I'm going to play one more song here, and then we'll uh, get into our phone call. Right about 11. This song, I think, is about six minutes. Burn. popular uh, support and then the people uh, carry out changes such as they desire shoot us down 
choke us out you don't face any consequence Fire this time is unapologetic blackness. That means that we are in the streets. That means that we are interrupting business as usual. That means that we are rejecting liberalism. That means that we are standing face to face, nose to nose with the enemy and refusing to back down. That means we're not looking for concessions or tinkering around the system. We're looking for an absolute replacement of this thing that has been beating and battering and raping and naming and terrorizing us for hundreds of years. That means that we are engaged in self-determination and building alternatives. We are no longer looking to the system or our oppressor for change. We are looking within. Can you hear me? Yeah. Hello. Hello. How are you? All right. How are you doing? I'm doing happy fourth. I'm doing good. I think we got it. Uh, I think I figured out how to work it. So this is uh, my good friend Earl Coleman calling into the station because I wanted to figure out how to do this. But I also want to ask him what's uh, what's on his mind. What's on your mind today, Earl? Oh well, first of all, I'd like to wish you a happy fourth. Oh. Uh, and I'd like to uh, really say that I appreciate your program. Uh, it's informative, and it's been helping me by listening to you on a lot of subjects. And. Uh, 
as in the past, being such a great educator, uh, you're now educating the community. So I just want to say thanks for that. Well, I certainly appreciate it. Thanks to you for it's listening. It's hard to hear you right now. It's like really uh, a lot of static, but uh, I'll talk there, how's that? Uh, uh, the best I can. I just want to uh, get your opinion on something. Sure. Um, I went to uh, a medical clinic here in Sacramento, and they go through the screening, and, you know, you have to wear a mask, and uh, I got upset because one of the people in x-ray walking around the hospital came got me with no mask and uh, taking me back to uh, x-ray. And when I asked him why he wasn't wearing a mask, huh. he um, told me he had to breathe. And my question to you is, how can this be possible when they do such a, a, a job of screening? Yet this person is allowed to walk around without a mask. And uh, hopefully uh, you'll you have some sort of advice or your input into it. And last, I, I want to say something about the White House, and then I would uh, wait for your response. Uh, with the problems that I understand our president had with reading the Constitution, my suggestion is the easiest thing that uh, people can request from him is to read the preamble to the Constitution. Uh, that's about it on my end that... Uh, but I would like your advice on the things I've said. Okay, well, um, as far as, yeah, the people working at the hospital without their masks, I mean, that's unforgivable. Um, I don't know. I guess uh, you might go up to them and say, uh, how come you're not wearing a mask? Or you might uh, talk to a supervisor, or you might just tell the next person you see that how you feel about this situation. You're coming into a situation that's supposed to be sterile and uh, without infection. And here's a person walking around wearing, not wearing a mask. Now I'm, I've, uh, on my, on my end down here at Kaiser, I've complained a couple of times. I don't know if it did any good, but <laughs> I don't know what to tell you. Some people just don't get it. Yeah, um, I felt that going through the process, if if all the employees and other people uh, were aware of it, uh, I felt that it was like uh, a little too much just to uh, bring attention to it. Hopefully someone else would, and I didn't speak out about it, which that is one of the ways of dealing with it. Yeah. And yeah. How, generally speaking, how have you felt? How have you been treated by the VA? I know you're an Army veteran, and you got... Well, as for, uh, they have went out there really with all the medical problems that I have, and uh, I haven't seen a problem with that. Uh, I canceled a few appointments uh, before this incident because of the fear of uh, the virus and going into the hospital. And this was the one time that I had to go in and have these uh, x-rays did. Uh, but it's overall, 
the VA's over the years have, have been very really great as far as my medical and health care has been going. Uh-huh. Uh-huh. Well, that's, I mean, that's good news to hear. I mean, people who go into the armed services, you know, don't really know what's going to happen to them. There might be a war, you know, and they might end up serving in war. So they should at least get, you know, good medical treatment. That should be the the basic thing. Anyway, um, the preamble to the Constitution... I was I had a little feature this morning about uh, the Constitution and how uh, the Declaration of Independence is one thing. It's it's uh, revolutionary and it's all inclusive, but the Constitution is a whole other thing. It's a document that was made for slave owners and um, people who had bought up a lot of uh, public debt who really wanted a strong central government. So that's what that about. Um, okay. okay, well. Go ahead. Again, uh, one of the things, again, I want to make it clear that I, I appreciate you. I appreciate our friendship. And uh, just like being a a great educator when you were uh, educating. Uh, you're doing a great job on the on the station. And, uh, again, I want to compliment you on that. Well, and thank, thank you. Thank you very much. I just want to recall that you were an educator, too. And oh. I remember, I oh, remember yeah. you as an educator. <laughs> one, of, yeah. one of the very best. Oh. Okay, and I, I just want to um, let you take other calls, and I just wanted to get that across, and uh, hopefully we'll speak again. Okay, hopefully next week you can call in again. We can talk. Oh, I would love to. Okay, well, I'm looking forward to it. Okay, and have a happy fourth. Everyone, stay safe, wear a mask, and do your distancing. And so safe. take care. I'll okay. be talking to you. Thanks again. So that was uh, my friend Earl Coleman. Earl mentioned about uh, being an educator. He he was also an educator uh, for several years, actually. Okay, I wanted to play something that I just found. Okay, it takes a lot to love. It takes a train to cry by none other than Phoebe Snow.
gets her son ready for school. She says, on these streets, Charles, you've got to understand the rules. If an officer stops you, promise me you'll always be polite. And that you'll never, ever run away. And promise mama you'll keep your hands inside. Well, is it a gun? Is it a knife? Is it a wallet? This is your life. It ain't no secret.
That was uh, Bruce Springsteen with his uh, indictment of police violence. Another case of police violence 20 years ago. Forty-one shots inspired by the police shooting death of Amadou Diallo. Forty-one shots by the police poured into the body of a of a defenseless man. Uh, the band played it also uh, in honor of Trayvon Martin and Oscar Grant, and you could we can make a list. That's part of the problem here. All right, I want to I want to access. We have. A regular feature on this show is called The Two Francescas, and there are two women. Uh, Francesca Ramsey is one. Ramsey was the hostess of Decoded and takes up issues of racism and sexism and um, bigotry. And the other is Francesca Fiorentini, who's a an L.A.-based comedian who does the same. Her, her group is called Newsbroke. So this week she, uh, not this week, but recently, she sat down and talked to Bernie Sanders. And uh, she discusses health care in America and Medicare. Well, here we go. Give a listen. This is not a mask. This is. Pardon me. See if they give us a chance here to pop in. At the moment, we're looking at mask commercials. Masks have become uh, overnight, within a matter of months, de rigueur in the U.S. How much does Medicare for All cost? How many Iraq wars? <laughs> to learn more about what Medicare for All could look like in America, I'm grabbing a bagel with the New York native who put it on the map. Hi. Senator and Democratic presidential candidate, Bernie Sanders. Medicare for all. There are 329 million Americans 
right? Uh, there's a lot of us. Let's say it passes. What does it look like? You're going to get a new card. Okay. It'll probably say Medicare for all. Probably have your name, maybe your address. Will it have your face on it? That won't have. <laughs> and then you go to any doctor you want. Give your doctor your card. They process it. There is no medical bill. That's about it. It's pretty simple. Are you going to enlist all of Silicon Valley? I mean, Obamacare, that website crashed. That's an interesting point. Medicare was originally created in 1965 mm -hmm. by President Lyndon Johnson and the Democratic Congress. They didn't have technology the way we have it today, yeah. right? Yeah. They were able to enroll 19 million people, senior citizens, into Medicare. If they could do it in 1965, 55 years later, we can develop an orderly process to bring the American people in over a four-year period. Ain't that complicated? I feel like that's because people answered the phone back then. Maybe. <laughs> Maybe. But we could do it. So overhauling the entire healthcare system is huge, right? Actually, not so complicated as my opponents would make it out. Okay. Look, the healthcare industry made $100 billion last year. Yeah. They think the system is just great. You got insurance companies, guys making tens of millions of dollars here. They think it is just a fantastic system. Why do you want to change it? Okay. But the changes that we're talking about really are fairly simple. Right now, you have the most popular health insurance program in America. Mm -hmm. It is far from perfect, but it's a good program. It applies to people 65 or older. What we do, we expand Medicare to cover hearing aids, dental care, and eyeglasses. And then in the first year, we go from 65 down to 55. Right. Does that sound terribly disruptive or radical? I don't think so. Next year, 45, next year, 35, next year, everybody's in. But eliminating the private health insurance yes. industry is big. And the Congressional Budget Office, for example, they say that it would have a huge impact on the economy. Now, they don't say it's negative or positive, but does that concern you at all? No, what concerns me is that a half a million people go bankrupt a year, that a lot of the folks I expect that you talk to are living great anxiety over whether or not they can afford health care. You know, it's always easy to say, oh my God, change is coming. Every change has a negative to it. But Medicare for all, guaranteeing health care to every man, woman, and child as a right, as exists in every other major country on earth, is positive and is the right thing to do. We know that the health care industry is not creating healthy people. But isn't it creating jobs? Creating, sure, they're creating jobs. Sure, it's off of sick people, but... No, look, Medicare for all will create more jobs in health care. Why is because that? because we don't have enough doctors, we don't have enough nurses. So what we need is a revolution in medicine. We will create more jobs in healthcare because more people will be able to access the healthcare system. So you're saying different types of jobs, like not necessarily administrative exactly. bureaucratic jobs, but actual physicians. Exactly right. We should be spending that money in the provision of healthcare, not in administration. There are, however, hundreds of thousands of people who are in the healthcare industry, yeah. you know, on the bureaucratic level, does your plan have a transition yes, for those does. folks? Actually, it does. But we cannot continue to have a dysfunctional, wasteful, and bureaucratic healthcare system. So we do provide a transitional period for those folks. Could you tell me more about well, that? Which means everything being equal, instead of filling out forms and arguing with people about whether they're covered or not, we want those people to get into the provision of healthcare, actually helping people. Okay. And there will be that opportunity over a period of time. So we don't want to throw people out on the street. Those people are not my enemies. They're trying to feed their families. How much does Medicare for All cost? How many Iraq wars? <laughs> that is a great question. 
Like one and a half. Yeah, I mean, that's a hot apples to orange to me. But here's the more important point. People say Medicare for all is expensive, but if we maintain the status quo, okay? Yeah. You don't bring in the cost efficiencies that Medicare for all will. There are estimates out there that we'll be spending $50 trillion over the next 10 years for healthcare. So we are already spending far more than any other country per person on healthcare. I know that taxes will go up. Can we just do a very mini role play where I am, let's say that heiress of a very powerful, famous person who likes to golf and tweet a lot. Are you? No, just for the sake just of this. Oh, just for the sake of argument. Why should I pay more in taxes? Let's say more than half of my income in taxes. I think it's time that we told the wealthy in this country that they're not a world unto their own. Three people own more wealth than the bottom half of American society. And I think that that's an outrage. So I say to that heiress, I'm sorry, you enjoy the benefits of the United States of America. You're proud to be an American. You're a billionaire. You're going to pay more in taxes. What about people who have retirement funds? invested in the private health insurance industry what what happens to them you know people make investments wherever they want them. they have an option to you know put their investments in healthcare or someplace else so people are free to invest their money and make money and sometimes you win and sometimes you lose but i think as we move toward a medicare for all single payer i suspect that some of those people will be changing their investment policies for argument's sake let's say that i like my health insurance Good. i like the logo uh, I like the billing system. I like that they play careless whisper when I'm on hold with them. Well, I got some bad news here. Despite the fact that you love your insurance company and you love arguing with them, you're gonna have to find somebody else to argue with. Okay. Because you're gonna get all the coverage that you need. But so that idea that somehow it's going away. But the point is nobody loves their insurance companies. What people love is the doctors, maybe the care they got in the hospital, and you will retain that. Yeah. And in fact, you will have more choice. On the Medicare for all, because everybody's in it together, you go to any doctor you want. So, you wrote the damn bill, right all right? Yep. And now, a lot of other Democratic presidential uh, candidates have their own Medicare for all version. Does it feel like you did your homework and now everyone's copying your answers? Well, I would look at it a little bit differently. I think I did my homework. I think we have the right solution. Uh, but I think other candidates, for a variety of reasons, are not willing to go where we have to go. And here's the reason why. The healthcare industry is an enormously powerful industry. And they are prepared to spend unlimited sums of money against any candidate who is in opposition to what they want, which is unlimited profits. So I think you're seeing a lot of candidates who are moving away from what Medicare for all really is about. Have you ever been threatened by the industry? You mean they put ads on the air against me? Sure, or yeah. Of course, they're going to spend right now. They're running ads. My guess is that they will spend many hundreds of millions of dollars demonizing me personally and the concept of Medicare for all, of course. You think we're going to see more of that in the next year? Do I think so? No, I know so. How much insulin swag would it take to buy Bernie Sanders? I think the pharmaceutical industry has given up coming into my office, as has the insurance company. You know, we got attacked by them every day. Uh, and, you know, that's what it is. We reached out to five of the biggest uh, private health insurance companies. And they either rejected our request. They did? Oh, I know. Shocked. With the bagel. You Come offered on. them a bagel. I offered them a bagel and a pickle on the side. Uh, they rejected my request, or they just didn't respond. Why do you think they wouldn't give me an interview? Is it me? I, I didn't want to have to tell you this, but you've asked the question bluntly, right? 
And you wanted it. It is you, actually. It's your personality, I think. Wow. I have been burned, really. These guys have unlimited amounts of money. And they don't want to talk to you. What they will do is take hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars mm -hmm. and buy politicians and put ads on television telling the American people what a great job they're doing. They're spending all their money on research and they're working on Alzheimer's and cancer. Da-da-da-da-da-da-da. That's what you do when you have unlimited amounts of money. You don't have to answer hard questions. You have said that we're never going to get Medicare for all unless there is a movement of people who demand it. Yes. Are you saying that even if we elect you president, we still have work to do? Yes. Yeah. Look, the heart and soul of our campaign is to tell the American people something that no presidential candidate I think has ever told him. And that is no president can do it alone. All right. We're taking on a very powerful insurance industry. Mm -hmm. We're taking on a very powerful pharmaceutical industry. In order to bring about the change that I believe the American people want in terms of health care, you're going to need millions of people involved in the political process. The Congress of the United States, the President of the United States, does not represent the needs of ordinary people. They represent wealthy campaign contributors. It is a corrupt system. And that's what we're taking on. Mm. So we have the radical idea that maybe, just maybe, our elected officials should represent working families and the majority of the people, not just the billionaires and people who can contribute a lot of money to campaigns. Has anything happened in your personal life that has made you so passionate about healthcare? Well, I grew up in a family that did not have a lot of money, period. So yeah. a lot of my political views are shaped by the fact uh, that my family lived paycheck to paycheck. Healthcare was one issue, but there are many other issues. I know that your your mother and father died when they were fairly young, when you yeah. were fairly young. Yeah. Would it be fair to say that that has something to do with what drives you now? I think it's one of many factors, yes. You don't like to make it personal. No, I don't. It's not about me. It's about so many of the people who are hurting, in some cases dying, uh, because they cannot afford the health care, which should be a basic American right. It's about everybody in this country having the right to go to a doctor when they need to. One final question. Uh, what's your favorite kind of bagel? Poppy seed. All right. Well, Even with the thing stuck in the... That is a problem, I admit. Huge problem. All right. In <laughs> life, we have to overcome huge problems, right? You're trying to pick out the poppy seeds in the teeth of Washington. I don't know. I'm, I'm trying to make that metaphor work. Thank you so much, Senator. I really appreciate you taking the time. Why does Decoded hate white people? Well, we don't. There's overwhelming evidence that implicit racial bias is real, and institutional racism is still rampant in America and abroad today. Whoa, okay, talking about oppression doesn't mean I hate white people. The problem is it's hard to get mad at systems and institutions instead of taking these conversations personally. When I criticize the school-to-prison pipeline, lack of police training, workplace discrimination, or our court system, some people don't want to hear it or think about it. Let's use preschool, for example. In a study done by the Department of Education, black children make up 18% of the preschool population, but represent almost half of all out-of-school suspensions. Basically, while a 
misbehaving white toddler might get time out, a black toddler is more likely to get sent home and have disciplinary action on their record. What does that say to you? For journalists who investigate these kinds of stats, they reach the conclusion that these suspensions are tied to teacher bias. In other words, teachers are more likely to see black children as threats to their classroom rather than just kids being kids. And always remember, all toddlers are monsters. This is a huge problem. Does it mean that all of these preschool teachers are racist? Not explicitly so, but they have bias, just like all of us. And fixing this is even more complicated, including allocating tons of money towards teacher training, childcare resources, and a million other things. So let's check in with your feelings. Are you A, mad at the Department of Education for not training teachers better, B, mad at your state congressional representatives for not pushing for bigger education budgets, or C, mad at me for talking about this because it's easier to direct your anger towards someone making you feel guilty instead of being angry at the complicated as f world of institutional racism. If you chose C, please resist the urge to close your browser and instead keep listening. You might have noticed, nowhere in there did I say white people are the problem. That's because these issues are bigger than individuals. It's going to take all of us to advocate for change. So the next time you have the urge to say, Francesca hates white people, please autocorrect to, Francesca hates the historical roots of oppression that have led to today's societal conditions, which allow institutions with white leadership to systemically discriminate against people of color. Easy peasy. It's clear that people who get mad about discussions of racism aren't actually listening to the criticisms. They aren't hearing the facts and stats. They aren't even directly disagreeing with research. Instead, they're disagreeing with the sentiment, things are bad for people of color and we need change. Why? Well, Dr. Robin D'Angelo, a white critical racial and social justice scholar, has described the discomfort some white people have towards talking about racism as white fragility. Since white people often grow up in environments where discussing race is seen as taboo, some react defensively when the topic of racism comes up. Dr. D'Angelo says this manifests itself as outward displays of emotions, such as anger, fear, and guilt, and behaviors such as argumentation, silence, and leaving the stress-inducing situation. I'd also add aggressively clogging someone's at replies on Twitter that list, but that's neither here nor there. It's also hard to think about these issues on an institutional level, and because talking about racism automatically makes a lot of white people uncomfortable, they sometimes begin to think they're being personally attacked or blamed. Recent studies show that white Americans believe bias against white people is a bigger issue in our country than ever before. This, however, is simply not true. Statistically, from mortgage lending to police brutality, the reality for white Americans tends to be way more positive than for black Americans and other people of color. So don't be mad at me, be mad at the stats. A classic example is the bias associated with drug use. White people use drugs at similar rates as black people, but black people are much more likely to go to jail for drug usage because of the way we structure our policing practices. There's even bias in the political language we use to describe the issue. In the 80s, when crack became a huge problem, we had the war on drugs. But now with the prescription meds epidemic, which is largely affecting white communities, we're actually calling it what it is, an opioid epidemic. But when these issues are brought up, too often people accuse us of bias against white people. By refusing to engage with the actual issues, the people who shout the absurd accusation, you're racist against white people, are really just attempting to shut down the conversation. Imagine if we were able to talk about these issues without a mob of angry replies. Or what if people were angry at oppression instead of the people talking about oppression? Or if the discussions were about what policies were needed and what our political leaders could do to help kids stay in school and prevent citizens from being murdered by the police. 
Imagine if people who think I'm racist against white people found something they enjoyed online instead of watching Decoded every week and complaining in the comments. And look, no matter who you are, these conversations can be difficult. Acknowledging your privilege is difficult, and accepting that the world isn't fair to everyone sucks. But the most important things are often the hardest ones to do. Thanks so much for watching. We don't hate anybody. We'll see you next time right here on Decoded. Okay, there you have it, the two Francescas. <coughs> Fiorentini with an interview um, with Bernie Sanders, bringing up an issue that's going to have to be dealt with by the Biden camp. The more progressive elements of the Democratic Party need to insist on some kind of Medicare for all. If they don't, they're going to lose several, lots of people who might vote for them. But there, it's going to be a thing where if Biden wins, it would just be a change of face. Biden is probably a lot less offensive than Mr. Trump. But what does he stand for? So we need issues like this. Medicare for all to be pressed on <coughs> Biden and his supporters. The second part was decoded, and this is the thing. Um, white people need to step forward and be responsible in some sense for the way society is and for the way it punishes people for being black or brown is going to be a hard one. It's something you got to do on a personal level. Someone asks you, are you racist? Of course you say no. It's not cool to be racist. You don't want to be racist. Nobody wants to be racist. But you don't ask the person if they're racist or not. You ask the people around them, the people they know their friends, the black and brown people who are in their lives, they'll tell you if that person is racist or not. Okay, to finish up here, I wanted to go to our Labor history in two minutes. Patterson Child Laborers Strike, July 3rd, 18th. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. This day in labor history, the year was 1835. That was the day that textile workers walked off the job at 20 Mills in Patterson, New Jersey. But this was not a strike like we might picture one today, with burly men walking the picket line or women chanting as they carry picket signs. 
In Patterson, most of the strikers were children, ages 10 to 18. Many were young girls. Child labor was in high demand in the silk mills because of their small, nimble fingers. The children walked off the job because they wanted an 11-hour workday and a six-day work week. They were tired of working 13 grueling hours a day, seven days a week. Soon, their parents formed the Patterson Association for the protection of the working class to support the strikers. There were no labor unions in Patterson back then. The company refused to negotiate. Women textile workers at other mills in the area also walked off the job. At its peak, 2,000 workers had walked out on strike. Finally, after six long weeks, the company agreed to a compromise. They settled on five 12-hour days and nine hours on Saturday. The children went back to work to a 69-hour work week. Strike leaders were blacklisted from the mill. This would not be the last time that child laborers took a stand on the job. In 1912, children workers were an important part of the famous Bread and Roses strike of Lawrence, Massachusetts textile workers. In 1933, children workers in Allentown, Pennsylvania sweatshops joined in a strike. Their participation led the governor's wife to join them on the picket line. The strikers there won an increase in wages and reduced hours. Children fought against their exploitation by taking to the picket line. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. I'm Rick Smith, and this is Labor History in Two. On this day in labor history, the year was 1966. That was the day that the Freedom of Information Act was signed by President Lyndon B. Johnson. The act required government agencies to respond to citizen requests for information. John Moss, a Democratic congressman from California, fought for the passage of the act for more than a decade. When the act finally got through Congress, the president issued the following statement explaining the significance, saying, This legislation springs from one of our most essential principles. A democracy works best when the people have all the information that the security of the nation permits. No one should be able to pull the curtains of secrecy around decisions which can be revealed without injury to the public interest. Since the passage of the act, the process of requesting records has come to be known by the acronym FOIA. FOIA can be a powerful tool in the hands of working people. For example, consumer advocacy groups can submit a FOIA request for information about a product safety record. Or citizens can submit a FOIA request to learn about the employment practices of companies with government contracts. Unfortunately, some FOIA requests get bogged down in red tape. In some cases, battles over the requests have gone all the way to the U.S. Supreme Court. Over the past five decades, there have been several amendments. Some have reduced access to federal documents, while others have made information more accessible. There are ongoing tensions between keeping state secrets and having a tool for transparency and accountability for government. States have their own freedom of information laws. Despite the red tape, the Freedom of Information Act was an important step forward for U.S. citizens to be informed citizens. Labor History in Two brought to you by the Illinois Labor History Society and the Rick Smith Show. Well, that about does it for our show today. Please... Uh, 
Stay tuned. I'll leave you in the capable hands of Scott Walker and his show, Flat Black Plastic. This is the bee reminding you that if one person gets a dollar they didn't work for, someone else worked for a dollar they didn't get. If you don't have a seat at the negotiating table where you work, you're on the menu. And never let, never let anyone into your heart who is not a friend of labor. Thanks for tuning in. Come on down to 2781 Mutiny Radio, 2781 Florida Street. Mutiny Radio and find your voice. Video. We've got live performances and art on the walls. A true community, a true community art center. Bye, everybody. Have a happy fourth and uh, have a good week. Are you tired of swimming through a sea of podcasts? Are ye on a raft without a patter? Well, gather around me, sea dogs, and get aboard me pirate ship as we set sail for the seas of MutinyRadio.fm. From there, you can captain your own pirate ship as you sail through over 44 different shows for all of your listening pleasures. They've got live comedy to small business advice. LGBTQ-friendly to sports, vinyl to gutter punk. MutinyRadio.fm has the best programming the Internet Ocean has to offer you. I bet my peg leg on it, or I ain't scurvy shit-faced McRat. <laughs> Anti-Trump is the antivirus or antibody to the Trump virus. We're a global alliance of humans standing up against the Trump brand. Antitrump.com started four years ago on March 19, 2016 with two sketches and a dream for a better world. Nobody thought it was going to be this bad. Most of us probably figured it would just be four more years of the same old... He was a 70-year-old babbling Nimrod. How bad could it really be? Treason is the last of his felonious activities. The Trump brand has hijacked our government and sold Lady Liberty to the mob. We are a leaderless, 
and without the most basic health care systems and community services. COVID-19 is a pandemic, but the Trump brand is the virus. Welcome to the antivirus. Go to antitrump.com and spread the word. Individual politics aren't important. What is important is that we stand together as a unified voice and say enough is enough. That's antitrump.com. Welcome to Strictly Bad Vibes, your personal complaint department. Um, what, what the hell are we talking about? Um, whiny people and their stupid complaints that we requested they send us. Why do we do this? Why, why are we <laughs> None of which matters in this equation because it is his choice to carry such horse shit on the fucking train. And he was yelling, he was like, move it, bitch, move it, bitch, and, uh, and, uh, I wasn't, I wasn't, I'm just not, I'm not moving it, you know? I've arrived, why should I move? I don't like what work has been giving us at our free lunches. 115-340-1976, and it does not spell anything. 115-340-1976. Go for it. Call in, guys. Friday from noon to 2 p.m. 
Bob? You ever want to be funny? Well, my dogs think I'm funny, Daryl. Well, I mean, you ever want to be, like, in front of an audience? Like, other than, like, squirrels, dogs, and dead persons? Well, shoot. From time to time, I've given it a thought of two. You know, if you go to joke <laughs> workshop, there's more than two peoples paying attention to your jokes, and they ain't even gonna be jerks about it. Daryl, are you serious? I can get people to listen to my jokes? And they'll even say nice things to you before they tell you how to get improvements. No way. What is this dang nabbit thing called? It's Joke Workshop. Joke Workshop? Yep, every Monday, 6 to 8 p.m. on the Mutant Radius. So you're saying I could tell my jokes every Monday from 6 to 8? That's what I'm saying. It's the Joke Workshop Mondays, 6 to 8 p.m. at the Mutant Radius. Yahoo! <laughs> Good evening there, my friends here at MutinyRadio.fm. Chester Cashcock here, and giving you my love and regard as well as movies over there. And uh, I just wanted to let you guys know that any time I go swimming in my vault of rare coins and piles and piles of filthy cash, I can't help but listen to Pamtastic's Comedy Clubhouse every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. I mean, if anyone who knows anything about comedy knows that Pamtastic's books the best of San Francisco and Beyond's underground comics. It's a great showcase, and they have a fun time at Pamtastic's Deep in the Mission District, where you can laugh off your tushy for every Friday to 10 p.m. And I laugh because five dollars, I mean, that's what I use to wipe my tushy with. So to laugh it off for a mere five dollars is indubitious. But if you can't make it to Mutiny Radio, well, don't even worry. Don't fret at all. You can simply download the podcast post-show and giggle in the comfort of anyone, like your Aspen summer home on the mountain ridge with the kayak chilling. So then all you got to do is just go to podcastics.pcrcollective.org slash comedy clubhouse, or you can listen live every Friday from 8 to 10 p.m. as your host Pam Benjamin brings you the best comedy from San Francisco and beyond the universe. And what's better than the universe? <laughs> it's a cash cock, honey. <laughs> Michael Spiegelman. And I am Carl, not Spiegelman. We're hosts of <laughs> you uh, with Michael Spiegelman. Follow us on podcast by with our acronym L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. We watch a full-length movie on YouTube with you, and you listen to the podcast and yeah. watch the movie at the same right. time. Yeah, L-W-A-F-L-M-O-Y-T. Every Sunday, 2 p.m. Standard Time, or Yeah, right. I'm so lazy. Three hours later. <laughs>